Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Where does greatness come from? Why was Ted Williams the greatest hitter in the history of baseball? What made Mozart one of the history's most talented composers? And why was Shakespeare such a brilliant writer? The typical answer most people give is that greatness is innate. You're either born with certain gifts and talents, or you're not. But recent research suggests otherwise. Greatness is in fact made through years of hard, deliberate practice. My guest today has been on the forefront of this research on the science of expertise. His name is Anders Ericsson. He's a professor of psychology at Florida State University. He, along with co-author Robert Poole, have recently published a book highlighting Ericsson's research into the true nature and malleability of talent. It's called Peak Secrets from the New Science of Expertise. And today on the show, Anders and I discuss the common misconceptions people have about talent, why the way most people practice leads to mediocre results, and how you can start implementing deliberate practice in your life to master any domain you choose. Great podcast with a lot of actionable points. After you listen to the show, make sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash peak for links to resources to delve deeper into this topic. Uh, so without further ado, Anders Ericsson and Peak. Okay, Professor Anders Ericsson, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to, and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, uh, I've long been a fan of your work. Um, you've done a lot of research about expertise, talent, deliberate practice. But the thing is, I've read about your work from other people writing about your work. So there's lots of books about uh, the research you've done. But you have a new book out where you, along with your co-author, Robert Poole, um, talk about the research you've, been, you've dedicated your career to and the sort of the science of expertise. The book's called Peak. Uh, before we get into the details of it, I'm curious, at what point in your career did you start focusing on what makes experts experts, and why did you decide to focus on that in your academic or your psychological academic career? Well, you know, I think we can go back quite a bit of time, even to high school, where, you know, I was really interested in, in how people were thinking, and I was interested in how scientists were able to kind of come up with their discoveries. And uh, so, so I think I've had that interest in understanding how some people seem to be able to think in a way that allows them to be more successful and productive. Uh, so actually, when I started, I started to become uh, an uh, engineer in nuclear physics. And then uh, 
I kind of got more interested in the thinking part, so I moved over to study psychology. Uh, and, and my first work was essentially just having people think out loud while they were solving you know, relatively simple problems. But what really fascinated me was, you know, how different uh, different people think and, and how many also similarities there are in how people have to think in order to successfully solve problems. So that was kind of the starting point of just studying thinking. And, and then I got an opportunity to go to the United States as, for a postdoc. And, and there I basically then started the work that we describe in the book on uh, you know, taking a regular college student and just seeing, you know, what is it that happens if somebody gets a lot of training on a particular task? Uh, in this case, you know, your short-term memory, how much can you actually, you know, be able to repeat back exactly? Uh, and, and, and what is it that happens to the thinking while you're actually improving your performance? Right, because I mean, that inter- research is interesting because it's you know it's sort of it's about working memory, and there's sort of like there's long thought there's a limit to it, right? Like you can only com- can maintain seven bits of information uh, in your working memory. That's why phone numbers are probably seven digits long. But through your experiments, you're able to help this one guy memorize digits, you know, number strands that were hundreds of digits long. Right. Uh, the first subject was able to do uh, a little bit over 80 uh, digits when you read them one per second. Uh, and, and I guess we had another, his friend, we trained him and, and he was able to get up to 110 digits. Uh, but I think the key finding was that if you're trying to find ways here of expanding how much you can hold on to, uh, and, and, and we found that people actually were storing it in long-term memory by making associations to things that they already knew. And, 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 and our two subjects were using running times as, as a primary way of actually making sense of uh, three- and four-digit numbers. Uh, but I think the, the kind of the key here is that if you commit to applying now the and building skill in a given domain, and and, and we found the same kind of finding here in chess and other types of domains that, that the experts were actually able not to have a more expanded working memory so they could keep track of what was happening and, and they could actually think and reason about what they might want to do uh, in a way that was very dependent now on the particular domain. Uh, so I think that's kind of maybe one of the most interesting findings here is that when you focus your training on a particular domain, uh, it seems that there's really no clear limit on how much information you can be able to sort of consider uh, as you have uh, engaged in training for an extended period of time. Okay, and we'll get later more into detail about this domain specificity of, uh, of practicing and getting better. Um, but before we get into like why we're able to do this, why we're able to, you know, we have limitless possibilities of getting better in a task, um, I think it would be useful to kind of talk about sort of the common misconceptions that people have about expertise um, and talent. So what are those most, the common misconceptions that people do have about their ability to get, become better or, or you know, develop their talent? Well, you know, I, I think basically the, the most 
important kind of misconception is that you really have to have innate talent to even bother to try to become or try to become an, an expert performer. And, uh, and I think, you know, we've now reviewed a lot of research that shows that basically that kind of idea here that you show something before you actually started engaging in training, uh, it's not well supported. And, 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 and we kind of argue that it's probably more important for you to kind of assume here that there aren't any innate gifts that you need to kind of discover by sampling all sorts of activities. It's more important that you kind of find a domain here where uh, you would have support and help and be interested. And, and it's really up to you to build uh, that performance that eventually then will, you know, allow you to reach very high levels. Right. And you talk, you highlight uh, examples of skills that were once thought to be just innate, natural talent. Uh, for example, perfect pitch uh, was thought to be something that you were just born with. But you and your researchers, fellow researchers have found that, no, you can actually, through practice, develop perfect pitch. Right. Perfect pitch is kind of a, a weird uh, ability that uh, people found that some musicians uh, had. So if you basically play a tone on the piano, they can actually tell you exactly what tone that is. And more, maybe even more impressively, if you you know, make a sound, uh, they can actually tell you what frequency uh, that that sound actually corresponded to in terms of notes. Uh, and, and one of the things that was sort of initially uh, a kind of supporting that view that you know, this is something that you either have and you don't, and it's sort of innate, was that basically when older adults tried to acquire this, they found it extremely difficult and, and basically not something that would be easily acquired. And, and then research started to look at basically the development. And, and one of the things that people noticed was that the musicians that acquired this tended to actually had started playing music at an early age. And and now I think it's pretty compelling evidence that there's an age period between three years and five years uh, where it seems like any child, if you give them the appropriate training, uh, will be able to acquire uh, this skill. As you get older, it's almost like the brain is now getting into a different developmental phase where it's actually you know, processing sound in terms of relationships. So we talk about relative pitch where you can judge two pitches and argue, you know, whether they're the same and how they're different, which is a quite different process from just getting a single note. Right. But, but that is to say though, uh, even as adults, it is possible with the right kind of training to move beyond just relative pitch, but actually acquire perfect pitch. There are demonstrations of people who have been able to do that, uh, with very extended training, uh, you know, they, they never really reach kind of the most extreme level of, of, of uh, perfect pitch, uh, but, you know, they certainly were able to do it. And, and what was interesting is that when they did it, uh, they actually had to kind of memorize a note or, or basically they needed some kind of fixed reference point. Uh, and, and basically that was kind of the focus of the training of being able to kind of self-generate a standard that would allow you now to compare uh, the note that you heard with your internal standard. 
Right. And going back to this idea that, um, you know, children between the ages of three and five, their brain is sort of uh, open to, you know, shaping through practice. Um, You talk about in the book how this is probably why Beethoven was such a musical prodigy. A lot of times we think that, oh, he just had this genius that he was born with. But you kind of show throughout the book that, you know, in fact, Beethoven at a very young age began extensive musical training uh, under the hand of his father that allowed him to become the Beethoven that we know today. Right. Uh, I, I think we were talking about Mozart. Oh, yeah, correct. You Mozart. You make a, a, a related argument about Beethoven. But Mozart was famous uh, for actually being one of the first documented cases here of this perfect pitch, you know, where he was able to name notes when they were presented in isolation. And uh, and obviously Mozart is viewed as a pretty remarkable uh, musician. I, in the book, we kind of really, you know, talk a little bit about when you compare what Mozart was able to do in terms of playing music, uh, it turns out that today's uh, Suzuki-trained uh, music students, that they actually, in some ways, are were even able to reach more prodigious level than Mozart. So it's not, you know, that Mozart was doing something that nobody else could replicate. Uh, and we also talk about the fact that Mozart's father, you know, may actually have been able to help Mozart with the early compositions. So when we're really talking about Mozart's ability to, you know, write compositions by himself. We're talking about something that was done when he was, uh, you know, in late adolescence. So, I mean, this is amazing. This what your research is showing is that, um, you know, talent isn't innate. You know, we can actually, if we want to, through our our willpower and our our choice and our commitment, we can improve ourselves in a, in specific skills um, through a certain kind of practice, which we'll talk about later on. But so if practice is the key to becoming an expert, a lot of people practice, you know, say if you're a tennis player and they go to the courts every weekend and they play tennis, they think that's practice. But you argue in the book that they're not really practicing effectively. So how is it that most people have practiced that kind of leads them to sort of this middling performance that they never actually get to expert level? Yeah, and, and I think most people know people who've been playing golf two or three times a week for 20, 30 years, and they don't seem to be getting any better. Uh, and, and I guess what the probably the most important point that we make in this book is, you know, once you look at what people do, and, and I think it's somewhat similar with people who are, you know, engaged in the same profession for decades, uh, they tend to just keep doing what they have been doing, uh, and they're just doing more of it. And I think uh, what we show here, you know, review after review, just basically the length of time that you've been spending in a domain, if we exclude the first year or two, when you actually do improve when you're kind of getting into the domain, uh, it doesn't seem like additional experience is really improving your ability to, you know, Uh, be effective here as a doctor in terms of how well your patients are doing, or if you're a teacher, how well you can get your students to improve their academic performance, uh, and and you can go wrong the line. And and even when it comes to just playing chess, uh, if you're a tournament player, uh, the amount of time that you've been spending uh, playing chess with your club 
friends uh, does not seem to improve your performance in chess. Uh, so basically, just getting more experience uh, is not automatically making you better. Gotcha. And going back to that research on the doctors, you even found studies, research that's, that doctors' performance actually declines with age. Right. If, if we're talking about something like diagnosing uh, heart sounds, uh, it actually turns out that the ability of a doctor to diagnose tape recordings here where we actually know what the patient's problem was uh, actually decreases as a function of how long they've been out practicing uh, since they graduated. Yeah, that, that, that was really interesting. So, okay, if you want to get better at golf or tennis or whatever skill you want to get better at, it's not enough just to go play a lot. Um, you argue that you need to take your practice to something that you call purposeful practice. Uh, so what's involved with purposeful practice? Well, you know, so, so we kind of argue that the ideal type of practice is if you have a teacher who observes you performing, say, you know, watching you play uh, tennis in a doubles game or whatever. And then, you know, they will actually notice here that when you get an opportunity to do a backhand volley or something, you know, that you basically are very unlikely to be successful. Now, if you just keep on playing, uh, the opportunities here for backhand volley is going to come, you know, when you're not really ready for it. Uh, so you're really not getting a very good chance here of developing better skills on, at improving that. So what we're arguing is, well, if a teacher observed you uh, and now says, okay, so let's now train your backhand volley. Now the coach can basically have you stand there ready to take a backhand volley and you keep doing that until you're you know, really having control over your shot and then basically make you step back and you know, make it harder for you. So incrementally, you're building up your skill of actually being able to do the backhand volley. And, and the argument is that if even if you have just a couple of hours training with a coach under those conditions, that's going to improve your backhand volley so much more than spending, you know, years or even decades of doubles tennis. So it's a matter of just honing in on a very specific skill and then purposely working on that skill. Right. And integrating it into what you would normally do because, you know, you don't want to make that change in a way that you're not relying on it when you're actually playing. Um, but that general principle here, and, and that that's true for musicians. So you have a musician who's preparing a piece for a public performance, and there's one section here where they have real difficulty, you know, really controlling and keeping up the tempo and, and the kind of variations here and in, 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 in loudness that is desired. Well, then you basically try to make that the target of practice. So, you know, the teacher would recommend here, maybe you would need to do some exercises to be able to speed up now, uh, basically certain types of finger combinations. Uh, and then you kind of keep working on it. And then eventually you embed that now in your performance. And now you can actually perform it at, at a higher level than you could uh, previously. So what's going on in our brain when we practice purposefully? Well, the argument is that a skilled performer, and, and this is really key to be able to 
practice by yourself, you know, you're going to be able to sort of have an idea of what it is that you're aspiring to do. And then, you know, you know, the kind of sequence of finger movements uh, that you're going to producing. And then you also need to be able to kind of listen to what it sounds like, uh, because you basically need to have some way of knowing if you're getting closer to what you're trying to achieve. And by iterating like that, maybe for hours, uh, you can basically now figure out ways in which you will be able to achieve that goal. So now you can produce something that sounds like what the teacher wanted you to be able to produce, and, and you can kind of hear that you're actually able to do that. And so even though personal practice is a step up from just sort of random practice that you might do, right? You play, go to the tennis court, go to the golf course. You you say in the book, though, that purposeful practice still has limits. What are the limits of purposeful practice? Well, you know, purposeful practice, the way we define it is that you have a goal and you're actually trying to change a specific aspect. Now, you don't necessarily know if that goal is the best. And, and just to take one example here, let's assume that you're playing basketball and you want to learn how to dunk, you know, and one way to kind of improve now your ability to get higher up in the air, you know, would be to kind of keep jumping up and down. Uh, now, it turns out that there's now kind of research showing that the most effective way of actually improving the height of your jump is not jumping more, but is uh, essentially uh, working with weights. So you actually are lifting weights, and that now gives the stimulus to your legs. You know, so you're actually explosively getting up with the weight, and that now puts much more pressure on your legs. And that type of training will eventually allow you now to actually get more success here in increasing your jumping height. Uh, so when we talk about deliberate practice, we argue that when the practice is actually recommended and the coach is actually diagnosing and saying, well, you know, at your current level of performance, uh, one thing that you can actually do to improve here within the next couple of weeks is by basically improving this. So let's focus in on trying to improve this. And here is some training activities that would allow you now to repeat and get immediate feedback here on your success. So once we have a teacher who actually has proven by bringing other people up to the level that you're aspiring to be at, then we're talking about deliberate practice because not only are you doing purposeful practice, but you're actually doing the kinds of sequence of purposeful practice that prior experience have shown uh, is associated with you being able to reach a higher level of performance. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. 
a lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Okay, so that, that's a key point there. So deliberate practice requires that you're, uh, that the, the results are, you can replicate the results. Right, and, and basically that, you know, the knowledge 
in training, and I guess in music, we have several hundred years of basically people trying to acquire very high level of skill on various instruments. So they've now developed training activities that are effective here of improving various things, like, for example, the speed of combinations, uh, the ability to you know, move your hand in jumps and stuff like that. Uh, so, so as long as there is basically this science support that a given activity will actually improve uh, something better, then we're actually calling that deliberate practice because a coach is more or less able to because that coach have actually seen other people reaching these higher levels of performance. And in some ways, I mean, that's kind of the magic of skill. You know, you're at the given level, and the question is, can you get to this higher level? Well, if you see 10 other people who were at your level who actually now, with the help of this coach, been able to reach this higher level, then I think most people would be convinced here, you know, that it seems likely here that this type of training will actually get me to this higher uh, point. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, because the deliberate practice requires you to focus on tasks or practices that we we know based on research will get you better. What are the other principles of deliberate practice? Well, you know, they basically, I guess, for the purposeful practice, you know, you need to have a goal and you need to have a training activity that allows you now to kind of keep repeating and refining what you're doing so you gradually will now be able to reach that goal. And you also need to have the opportunities here to kind of reflect on what happened when you tried to do something slightly different to assess here whether that really could be a path for you to reach uh, this higher level of performance. So this idea here that you really need to do something you get immediate feedback about whether this is actually not closer to the goal, and and basically you keep refining. And we find that you know so much of education and training doesn't really meet that criterion for purposeful practice. So I guess if you go and listen to a lecture or you know the coach is telling you about how to do things, that's very different from that individualized practice where you can actually do things and gradually uh, improve uh, your ability to do it. And uh, so, so we basically argue here that most of the training that you see, even that's going on uh, between teams, uh, you know, contain a relatively small proportion of what we would call purposeful. And, and in particular, if you have only one coach to 40 uh, soccer players or football players, then obviously very little is going to be individualized training. You know, the coach is going to be having everyone doing the same thing, and that may be useful perhaps to a few of the individuals, but you really are not kind of finding that optimal training difficulty that really would be effective for each individual. Um, so one thing I've read about deliberate practice and you know, the articles and books that have written about it is that it's, it's hard. Deliberate practice is hard. It can be boring, monotonous. Why is that? Why does deliberate practice have to be hard in order for it to work? Well, you know, one of the preconditions of deliberate practice is that the task that you're setting yourself out to achieve is not something that you can already do. 
So, so basically, it's almost like, quote, setting yourself up for failure because there is a, a, a gap here between what you're trying to do and what you currently can do uh, in a sort of consistent way. Gotcha. So anytime when you're actually trying to stretch yourself, you know, it's going to require a lot of concentration. And also it seems that unless you're really trying to reach for this higher level goal, uh, basically just repeating doing things is not going to make a difference. Uh, so that's why, you know, deliberate practice almost by design uh, is going to be difficult. And the number of times that you're not meeting the standard uh, is going to be uh, very high. And, and it is, you know, obviously once you get, so you can now actually reach this goal, then you're going to get that satisfaction of feeling now that you can actually do things that you couldn't do maybe a week earlier. And that is kind of enjoyable, but you know, there's a long path before you get there. And, and what we find is that, you know, most of the musicians and other uh, performers, they tend to have pretty stable practice schedules. So they, you know, actually decide to always every day, you know, put in an hour or two or whatever in the morning, perhaps. Uh, so they don't really have to do what amateurs do. You know, I'm going to go out and jog today. Maybe not. You know, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Uh, these individuals have already made that commitment. And sometimes, you know, they, they practice uh, together with other individuals. Uh, so they, you know, the coach would keep track of whether they practice or not. Uh, and then they're kind of focused here and on this goal. So they're not asking themselves, do I want to keep doing this or not? You know, you're just engaged here in this process of trying to reach the goal that you set for yourself. And then when you're done and you have reached the goal, well, then you can relax and enjoy it. And a lot of people find that that kind of concentration is, is really enjoyable because it relaxes you. It's sort of, you're maximally focused during the training, but afterwards when you take the shower and stuff like that, you know, you feel this relaxation and, 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 you know, a very pleasurable, enjoyable feeling. So, uh, is purposeful practice, deliberate practice, is it domain specific or if you, or is there a sort of, can you increase your sort of generalized ability to improve performance in other areas by taking part in deliberate practice and, one specific area? You know, that's a really interesting question. And, and I think it may depend a little bit on, you know, your level of uh, uh, skill. Uh, we know in some domains, uh, I, I contributed to a study looking at uh, world-class rhythmic gymnasts. And what, what they found in that uh, case was that if you started, you know, training in ballet, you were much more likely here to be, uh, you know, world class when you were an adult gymnast than if you actually started uh, training in gymnastics, because basically the early training in gymnastics is much more, you know, free play where you tumble around and do things, whereas ballet has a little bit more structure where you, you know, learn how to keep your posture and and keep your balance and so on. Uh, so I think early on, you know, there may be, uh, you know, activities that could potentially benefit you, like being able to have the right kind of posture 
might actually be valuable in, in, in several different types of activities. Uh, however, as you get more and more skilled, uh, I found less evidence that basically you would have that kind of general transfer. Even when people do weight training uh, in domains, team sports, uh, it seems that now the most effective weight training at the highly skilled levels is actually designed you know, to get at strengthening the muscles in particular situations where you know, increased strength would be particularly useful in that particular sport. But that obviously would not then uh, be likely here to generalize across other types of sports. Right. And so, I mean, you even talk about the uh, chess players, um, you know, they can get really good at chess, um, but sometimes they don't get better in other activities that are similar to chess. That's that's true. And, you know, and, and I think we need to kind of distinguish it may be that a chess player, you know, when they start playing some other game, may be at an advantage compared to other players. But when it comes to actually transferring that high level of performance, uh, I don't know of any evidence suggesting here that, you know, having been a world-class chess player, you know, would actually make you more likely here to, uh, you know, uh, be successful in this other game. So you somehow would be able to find some pathway here that would shortcut that training that's required for mastery of this uh, new game. Um, but, you know, uh, I have to be honest here. Very few world-class chess players, as far as I know, have, have really taken on and tried to become world-class in bridge or, uh, you know, whatever other game uh, you would be uh, thinking about. Uh, so basically, you know, uh, that's one of the intriguing things is that it seems to be so time and energy and resource uh, constrained to achieve world-class level in a single domain that it's extremely rare uh, that individuals are able to reach that level in more than one domain. Um, throughout the book, uh, sort of the key part that you and Robert Poole um, carry throughout the entire book that's key to deliberate practice, why it works, is this idea of mental representations. Um, what are mental representations and what role do they play in your theory of expertise? Mental representations is sort of that kind of organizing feature that, and, and what we find is as you get better in a domain, uh, you ab acquire this ability of being able to close your eyes and actually mentally kind of see a, a picture or, or uh, kind of a, a, a mental image that you can manipulate and, and think about. So if you wanted to have a music piece sound like something, you know, you can hear that music piece before you start playing, and then you can also basically now use that image that you want it to sound like as kind of a, a input here to how you play it, and then you listen to it, and, and basically that ability of actually mentally, you know, listen to a piece of music uh, and 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 actually think about how you could do it slightly differently to get it to sound even better. That kind of imagery, and, and, and that's what we basically refer to as mental representation. And, and I guess it's sort of like key to improvement. So if you don't know what you need 
want it to sound like or what you need want to do, it's going to be very hard for you to be able to do that, right? Uh, so it seems that almost always people are able to hear uh, differences or when they look at other people you know, doing something, they're aware of what the difference is between how to do it the right way with the best success and how they currently are doing. So that is kind of the starting point for you now to try to bridge that gap by engaging in training activities. So it's almost like your ability to see what needs to be changed is actually being developed in parallel with your increasing skill. And I think that's one of the things that I would emphasize here when it comes to uh, training children and adolescents. You know, the parent and the coach really need to help the child and the adolescent to develop these representations because they eventually need to be responsible for their continued uh, development once they get to a point here where they can now do what their parent or teacher is able to do. They need to kind of continue that improvement if they're going to be competitive at the national and international level. So yeah, it seems like that the coach or the teacher, they have the multiple representations already and they're trying to impart that to their student. Um, but how can individuals apply deliberate practice when they might not have a coach or a teacher available? Well, I, I guess what you need at least is some kind of vision here of what it is that you would like to be able to do. And, and until you basically have a clear way of explicating what it is that you want to do and, and a method by which you will be able to tell if you can do that, uh, then I think it's going to be really hard to design purposeful uh, practice. But I think, you know, pretty much any kind of activity that we engage in, uh, we can at least find factors that can be uh, converted into measurement. So for example, uh, let's talk about, for example, a doctor that listens to a patient. And then the question is, does a doctor, would they be able to, after the interview with the patient, to actually recall and describe what it is that the patient was actually saying and what they were concerned with and whether the patient really understood now how the recommended treatment would address the problem that they were experiencing. Now, that is sort of an activity. You can have the doctor, after seeing a videotape, you know, try to really write down now, what was it that the patient was saying? And what they find is that some doctors, they're just so, you know, in their own mind, focused in on what the medical problem is, that they don't really have that ability of listening to the patient or what it is that they are, you know, having problems with. And I think basically that listening skills is something that, you know, we can evaluate relatively easily. And if we can evaluate it, we can also set up now training activities where you would be watching a series of videotapes and we can kind of see here how your ability to actually, uh, you know, uh, describe what the patient was saying uh, uh, during uh, that interview. 
So yeah, that's great. So this is, you're kind of showing how um, individuals can take sort of amorphous skills like good doctoring or business management, where there's not a specific skill that you can, you know, kind of pinpoint and say, if I work on this, I'll become a better business manager. Um, But with this doctor example, you're showing that it is possible to apply deliberate practice, even to more amorphous soft skills. Right. You know, and, and I think another thing that doctors gets training on is, how do you basically uh, talk to a patient that you're going to have to tell that they have a very low probability of surviving for the next six months? And, and, and they actually have design now. So they're actually individuals that are trained to be patients. So you would have a doctor here now, you know, given an assignment here to convey to this actor patient, you know, and then basically that actor patient will try to behave in different ways that would now help the doctor realize what some of the issues and problems. And then you would have a coach who would actually be, you know, reviewing the videotape or, or the actual interaction that would then be able to help the doctor here pointing out, you know, uh, here's something that you need to change. I mean, you need to really help this individual, you know, do the best uh, of a very difficult situation. And, and, and what they find is that these difficult situations, if you get training uh, in actually helping people through them, you know, you can do a much better job so the patient actually now is able to more constructively deal with, you know, what would be, in any case, a very challenging situation. So, Dr. Erickson, um, your idea of deliberate practice has been written about extensively. Uh, I've read the the talent code or talent is overrated. They've written about it, but Malcolm Gladwell wrote about your work famously, and he came with this whole 10,000 hour rule. It's often become synonymous with deliberate practice, uh, but you devote an entire section and you and Robert Poole devote an entire section deta- detailing the misconceptions that people have about this rule. Uh, what are the misconceptions about the 10,000 hour rule? I think the most important misconception is this idea that if you just keep doing something for 10,000 hours, you magically become an expert. And I guess uh, Malcolm Gladwell was talking in his book here about the Beatles playing, you know, uh, very, very extended periods in Hamburg. And he was arguing that maybe, you know, this thousands of hours of playing you know, could possibly explain uh, why the Beatles was developing into uh, the music band that, you know, composed a lot of successful songs. I guess we are arguing here that you really need to link it. And I think in my own mind, and I think a lot of biographers of the Beatles would argue that, you know, their compositions, I mean, it wasn't like they were instrumentalists that played other people's music. I mean, their fame was... Uh, and, and playing their own composed music that really made uh, uh, a major impact. So what we need to explain here is how these compositional skills were developed, and, and, and that's actually a different task. So in our work, uh, and Gladwell was referring to it when he came up with this 10,000-hour rule, you know, we were talking about that activity that a music student is actually working by themselves in their you know, training room, uh, working on tasks that their music teacher has assigned them. So if we just count those hours where they're spending, you know, working by themselves on really trying to gradually improve their skill, that's 
the kind of time that we were talking about. And, and, and I think that idea here that the body would know when you actually have done 10,000 uh, hours of something, you know, doesn't make sense. And, and it differs from domain to domain. And in fact, when I try to estimate the amount of time that musicians, pianists had practiced alone before they won an international piano competition, probably was, would be more closer to 20 to 25,000 hours of training. So there's several things here that I think are different, but I do think that Malcolm Gladwell did a good thing here by helping people believe that the way even the most talented become great is actually expending this very long period of time where they're actually working and trying to develop their skills. And anybody who's looking for, you know, a secret where they can become a world expert here after five hours of training. You know, I mean, that's sort of totally ridiculous. And, and I think we need to help people realize what, what the path is going to have to look like for them to be successful. And then they can make a choice, you know, uh, are they seeing here that they would like to make that commitment uh, but essentially saying that they wouldn't be able to or that they wouldn't be able to do it with five hours of training, you know, that's a different uh, kind of idea. And and all we can do, I think, in science is to help people see, give them the best possible information about the choices that they have about the careers that they might want to pursue. Well, Dr. Erickson, this has been a, a fantastic conversation. Where can people learn more about uh, the book Peak? Well, I think maybe the best source is uh, uh, the peak the book in one word uh, dot com. Uh, Robert Poole and his wife have uh, set up a website where you can also uh, you know get in contact with us and also a lot of other connections here of, of related issues. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Anders Erickson, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. It was wonderful. Thank you. My guest today was Anders Ericsson. He's the co-author of the book, Peak, The New Science of Expertise. Uh, you can find that on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also go to Peak the Book for more information about the book. Also, check out the show notes at aom.is peak for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show and have gotten something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out a lot. As always, I appreciate the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! 
the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.